You're listening to KMUZ, Turner, broadcasting at 88.5 FM and 100.7 FM, streaming at KMUZ.org and on your smartphone with the free TuneIn Radio app. Visit our website at KMUZ.org to learn more about supporting KMUZ. Welcome to the Forum, recorded broadcasts of lectures, interviews, and presentations of public interest to the Mid-Willamette Valley. Check our Facebook page, The Forum on KMUZ, for upcoming topics and to leave comments. Today's forum is a recording of a presentation by Salem City Club. Their lunchtime speakers brought expertise in energy generation and distribution of electricity. With background in history, the power grid that serves our homes and businesses today, and what's in it for the future. Hello, I'm Ron Ekus, president of Salem City Club. We are in our 55th year, and I'm glad you could join us. Salem City Club's mission is to provide nonpartisan civil discourse on important civic issues. Due to the ongoing pandemic, we will be presenting our programs virtually. We hope you will sign up and join us. You can visit SalemCityClub.com for more information and to register for our programs. As always, I wanna thank our members, our volunteers and friends who continue to support Salem City Club. Your memberships and donations enable us to continue presenting these programs. And thank you as well to Spire Management for the association services they provide. Salem City Club also depends on the generous support of our supporting business partners. These are KMUZ Community Radio, Eugene Fulbert Graphic Design, Pioneer Trust Bank, Ridge Duncan Construction, Virgil T. Golden Funeral Home, and Busy Bees Real Estate. And now today's program lead, George Dyer, will introduce our speakers. Thank you, Ron. The energy industry is changing at lightning speed. The shift away from fossil fuels is dramatic uh, and impacting our industry and daily lives. In the face of climate change, how can we ensure that there will be enough cleaner energy to fuel our daily use? Our program today will focus on the work being done to make sure that our energy systems are balanced, resilient, affordable, and clean. Our speakers today know Oregon, the Pacific Northwest, and energy planning. Now we'll take about 20 minutes uh, for each presenter, and I had a chance to uh, sneak preview of their slides and found them to be very informative, and you may want to review them after their presentation. Uh, we'll be posting them on our website. Now, our speakers today are Janine Benner, who administers Oregon's Department of Energy, of which one of its many responsibilities is to collect data that may help problem solve Oregon's energy challenges of today and tomorrow. Next, we will hear from Mari Galbraith, who is the Executive Director of the Western Interstate Energy Board. The board's task is to help the Western states and two Canadian provinces develop cooperative energy efforts to help enhance the economy of our region. So I wanna thank both of you for joining us today. And let's start with Janine. Hi, thank you so much, George. I'm Janine Benner, I run the Oregon Department of Energy. I will be introducing you to the Oregon Department of Energy and also sharing some thoughts on how the energy system is in transition. And then I'll introduce you to the Biennial Energy Report, which I hope will be a resource for you as you engage in energy and climate issues. 
And as I share information on the report and its contents, I'll also highlight a few key concepts and terms that I hope will help you better understand how the energy system works, where Oregon's energy comes from, and how it's used. Uh, and please consider this presentation a foundation on which future discussions can build. At the end, I'll briefly touch on steps that you as Oregonians, business owners, and city leaders can take to create a safe, equitable, clean, and sustainable energy future. So before we jump in, I'll just share a few words about the Oregon Department of Energy. It was founded in 1975, two years before Congress created the US Department of Energy. And what you see on this slide is our vision, mission, and an articulation of what we do. So we help Oregonians make informed decisions and maintain a resilient and affordable energy system. We advance solutions to shape an equitable clean energy transition, protect the environment, and responsibly balance energy needs and impacts for future generations. Um, and at the bottom of the slide is uh, an articulation of what we do. We have such broad authorizing statutes and diverse responsibilities that it helped us to break it down into five main areas. And as um, George said, one of those is collecting, researching and analyzing data, and then also um, providing energy education. And I think this um, talk today is, is an example of that. So if you'll recall, our mission talks about shaping a sustainable energy transition. So I wanted to spend a little time today talking about that transition. 25 years ago, Enron had just acquired our local utility and was promising a deregulated market utopia in California. Global warming was a new vocabulary term for most of us. And Oregon led the way with the nation's first carbon emission standard for energy facilities. 15 years ago, Oregon passed our renewable portfolio standard. As a new all-electric vehicle called the Roadster entered the U.S. market, crude oil was trading above $100 a barrel. Solar panel prices were more than twice the cost that they are today. And today in Oregon, we are implementing legislation requiring that utilities get to 100% clean electricity by 2040, and that prohibits the permitting of new natural gas power plants. Oregon's only coal plant, Boardman, closed a year ago. The electrification of transportation is starting to take place as wind and solar are becoming the least cost resources and Oregonians are already seeing the effects of climate change on our state. So these changes didn't just happen, of course. They were driven by deliberate actions taken by policymakers at all levels, investments made by public and private entities, and by geopolitical and market forces beyond our borders. Now, unfortunately, I don't have time to dig into all of these topics, though if you're interested, I can point you towards a presentation I gave to the legislature in 2020. But as we think about how and why Oregon's energy system is changing, there are three main themes that stood out to us at the department. First, clean energy technology costs are going down, and this has enabled renewable energy development to grow across the state, so, for example, if you look at the solar dashboard on Odo's website, you can see how the utility scale projects have really grown significantly. And Cindy Condon can tell you that the Energy Facility Siting Council is reviewing more solar energy applications than ever before. Lower costs have supported adoption of new technologies. For example, as electric vehicle battery prices go down, the cars get cheaper, the ranges get longer, and the number of EVs on Oregon's roads goes up. The second theme is that past energy policies are bearing fruit. 
So Oregon's leadership on energy policy, such as the Renewable Portfolio Standard, has encouraged more and different types of clean energy technologies. Our investment in energy efficiency pays and will continue to pay significant dividends. And finally, the state is ramping up our efforts to address climate change. And these policies are speeding up this transition by reducing fossil fuel use and increasing clean energy use. So those of us in the energy industry and policy worlds follow this transition very closely, but I assume many of you don't live and breathe energy like I do. So I'm going to take most of the rest of this presentation to walk you through the 2020 Biennial Energy Report, which I hope can be a resource for you as you work to navigate these energy issues. The report, which is written by my office, um, is statutorily required, and the statute frames the content, but in scoping the report, we also reach out to energy stakeholders and the public to learn what people are interested in reading about. You can find the whole biennial energy report online through the link here, or you can Google Oregon Department of Energy report and it will come right up. And if you visit the energy report online, the table of contents sort of offers the easiest way to find the articles that you want to read. And each of these titles um, that you see in the table of contents has a hyperlink and you can just click to get to the right page of the report. Now it's a 612 page document, so it might take a while to load. Uh, and as you're looking at it, each topic is self-contained, can be read either in the context of the report or on its own. It's almost like a magazine, a really long magazine that you can read cover to cover or just focus on the articles that interest you most. The first section of the report is called Energy by the Numbers. And that's where you can find the facts and figures on Oregon's overall and sector-based energy use, energy production and generation, and energy expenditures. And I'll take you through a few examples. So this is a visual summary of how energy is produced, imported, and used in Oregon. The diagram uses 2018 energy generation and consumption data and is shown in trillion British thermal units or BTUs. It's a measurement of energy. And as you look at this, the chart follows each resource through the system from left to right. So as you can see, Oregon produces a lot of renewable energy with hydropower as our backbone. And we import almost all of the fossil energy that we use. Um, petroleum is our largest imported resource. So resources are produced or imported and then they flow to that red electricity generation bar and also directly to sectors for consumption. You can see on this visual that of the energy consumption sectors in Oregon, the commercial sector uses the least energy and the transportation sector uses the most. And you'll see there's a lot of waste energy, which is energy that's not harnessed from the point of extraction to the point of use. So that's heat lost, sorry, energy lost as heat during combustion or transformation into electricity, transmission losses, and many other factors. Use energy serves a purpose such as lighting up a room or powering your car. Now I recognize this is a really complicated diagram and hard to see on the screen. Um, and I encourage you to spend some more time with it. It's on page one of the energy by the numbers section of the report. So this is what energy we produce in Oregon. And you can see that it's mostly hydro, wind and biomass and that solar wedge is growing. We don't have any coal mining or oil drilling here in Oregon. Of what you see here, some of this energy gets used in the state and some of it gets exported. So I just showed you what we produce in the state and this is what we use in Oregon. 
These bubbles are what is known as Oregon's electricity resource mix. They show how much of each resource was used to generate the electricity sold to Oregon utility customers in 2019. And then on the right, those bars show that generation mix over time. So as you saw in the energy flow diagram, some of this electricity, in fact, all of the coal is imported. And you can see that our use of electricity from coal is going down and will continue to decline as we near the 2030 deadline for no more imported coal and as coal plants close across the West. You can also see that electricity generated by natural gas has increased over time. It nearly doubled between 2012 and 2018. This graph shows how much we spend on energy in Oregon over time. The top line that stands out so much is what we spend on transportation. And this really illustrates both increase in consumption and price volatility in the transportation fuels market. The transportation sector represents about 30% of energy consumption, but it accounts for more than half of our total expenditures. And because nearly all of our transportation fuel is imported, most of the money we spend on transportation goes out of state. The slides that I've shown you so far show statewide energy information, but the online version of the report also has energy, economic, and demographic data for each county in the state. You're all probably familiar with the fact that while Oregon has taken steps to reduce greenhouse gas emissions, the state is not on track to meet our greenhouse gas reduction goals. And the report slices and dices the numbers on climate change in different ways, by the productive use that creates emissions, by the sector that use falls within, and then by the source of the emissions. So categorizing the data in these different ways can help reveal new insights. For example, on this graph, which uses DEQ data, you can really see how the increase in transportation emissions, which is that blue area at the bottom, is driving up overall emissions. In 2020, Governor Brown established new goals by executive order aiming for at least 45% below 1990 levels by 2035 and at least 80% below by 2050. So you can see we have a ways to go. And the next section of the report is the history timeline. And this is my personal favorite as a college history major. Starting with the Missoula floods that helped form our state's landscape 18,000 years ago, going all the way through 2020, this timeline helps highlight the events that brought us to where we are today. Looking at history can help provide context to understand the present. And viewing these events on a timeline can help us see the connections between them, such as the deliberate policy choices that were made in response to various energy crises. You can see on this slide the 2001 Western energy crisis, which led electricity prices to jump from $50 per megawatt hour to $1,300 per megawatt hour. And this crisis, which is connected to Enron's criminal market manipulation, led to policy and regulatory changes that still have implications for how Northwest regulators, lawmakers, and the public view energy markets today. And the end of the timeline really shows how we're living through history. As I mentioned before, Oregon's only coal power plant, Boardman, closed in 2020, and large utility-scale solar and wind projects are becoming more prevalent. So reading through this timeline, you can really see the energy transition in action. The next section of the report is Energy 101, and the information here is meant to provide a foundation for those new to energy and who want to learn more about how the system works. You can see the topics on the right-hand side, everything from natural gas to net metering to net zero buildings to how to read your energy bill. 
One example in the Energy 101 section is transmission, which is an important factor in bringing new clean energy resources online and getting power to population centers. This section of the report explains the difference between transmission and distribution systems, familiarizes the reader with terms like bulk power system, substation, transformers, et cetera. And here's a fun fact. If you stretched all of PGE's transmission lines end to end, they would stretch from Portland to Denver, Colorado. So I'm not gonna spend much time on transmission because Maury will be discussing regional efforts to collaborate on energy transition transmission um, in more depth. Another 101 example that's relevant to our conversation today is resource adequacy. As the state transitions to renewable energy and away from coal, you may have heard about resource adequacy, which is a term that electricity planners use to refer to the evaluation of whether adequate electricity generating capacity will be available to meet demand. So unlike gasoline and natural gas, which are commodities that can be stored in tanks or pipelines, Electricity has to be generated and delivered across a large transmission and distribution system just in time to meet customer demand. So the electricity industry applies the term resource adequacy to the evaluation of whether a particular utility or area of the grid or region has adequate resources available to meet future demand for electricity at different times and under various conditions. The primer in the report talks about how utilities evaluate resource adequacy, how it's distinguished from reliability, which is more of a short-term system stability issue, and whose responsibility is it to ensure that we have an adequate power supply and that the electricity is there when we need it. And again, Maury will be talking about resource adequacy in the context of coal plant retirements and increasing variable energy resources in the West. The next section of the report is energy resource and technology reviews. It highlights 23 resources and technologies that we use or produce here in Oregon covering the spectrum from traditional to innovative. And this is where you can learn about technologies that can help the state meet our climate and energy goals, hydropower, geothermal, demand response, and marine energy, for example. One of the technologies that you can learn more about in this section is energy storage. The report includes technology reviews on both residential and utility scale storage. So residential energy storage has been around for a while. And in 2019, there were close to 300 residential storage systems installed in Oregon, most of which are installed in conjunction with solar and are mostly designed to provide backup power to a home in the event of a power outage. Now, as I mentioned, when talking about resource adequacy, the technology to store electricity at the utility scale, the bigger scale is further behind. There was one facility in the state as of 2019. <clears throat> but you can see from the chart on this slide, the relationship between declining battery costs, that orange line, and battery storage adoption trends at a national scale. And the key point here is that utility scale storage is becoming more economically viable and we're likely to see much more of it in the future. So that one utility scale storage project that I mentioned is actually in Salem. It's the PGE Smart Power Center which was a US DOE demonstration project. And it provides backup power for the regional grid and also ongoing smart grid research. So the last part of the report is policy briefs. And in this section, we take a deeper dive into some of the hot topics that Oregonians are thinking about. The topics are on the right, ranging from climate change to offshore wind to alternative fuels. And I'll share just a few examples of policy briefs that might be of interest to the topic of conversation today. So 
Um, the policy brief on climate change looks at where emissions are coming from and what decarbonization strategies are being pursued in each sector. And in this policy brief, you can also find a table of cities and counties in the state that are taking action on climate change, such as Hood River County and the city of Eugene. And I understand that the Salem uh, Climate Action Plan is gonna be finalized in early 2022, which I think is super exciting. Another policy brief example is on electric vehicles and their effect on the electricity grid. So as more and more people buy electric cars, there's some concern about the amount of electricity that they use. Currently, the overall effect of EV charging is not distinguishable from normal fluctuations in the electricity load, primarily because EV adoption levels are relatively low. And EVs, while they use more electricity than your average refrigerator, use less than your average water heater. So the effect on um, your home is actually not as big as you might think. As of the end of September, there are nearly 42,000 electric vehicles on Oregon's road. And you can see from the chart on the right, there's not really much um, enough to make much of a difference yet for electricity. But as EV growth is accelerating, this may change. And this policy brief talks about how utilities are planning for and addressing that increasing number. And the utilities are really focusing on knowing where and when EVs are charging. So you can see from the map on the left of Salem Electric's territory that there are a lot of EVs concentrated in that Southwest area. So this is a place where the utility may need to upgrade their distribution system or look at additional energy efficiency and demand side management. If you'd like to know more about electric vehicles, how many there are, where they are in the state, how much they cost, how much you can save by switching to electric, you can find more information on our website. Another policy brief um, is on electricity markets. This looks at changes in the energy landscape that are driving interest in regional integration in electricity markets. Um, this was a topic of conversation in the last legislative session, and the department just finished up work on a report that the legislature asked us to do, looking at Oregon stakeholder perspectives on the topic. And I believe Maury will, uh, again, provide additional insight into what's happening across the West. And the final policy brief that I wanted to highlight is offshore wind. Um, the Southern Oregon coast has one of the best wind resources in the country due to very strong wind speeds. With Oregon's greenhouse gas reduction targets and the need for clean energy, this could be a really important resource for the state, especially because the wind blows stronger and steadier offshore, and offshore wind can generate electricity when land-based renewables don't. But because the Oregon coastline drops off quickly, it gets really deep, really fast. The turbines are harder to anchor to the seafloor and require floating platforms. So this, along with high costs of transmission to get the power to population centers, means that offshore wind is still in its early days. As of 2018, there were eight floating offshore wind projects in the world, none yet in Oregon. But Oregon policymakers have seen the potential in offshore wind, and the legislature assigned Odo to undertake a study on the topic that will be coming out in September of this year. So now that I've provided a brief overview of Oregon's energy system and showed you how you can learn more, um, let's talk for a minute about how this matters to Oregonians and what they can do to help with the transition. As I mentioned, part of the Department of Energy or ODO's mission is to educate Oregonians about energy. And we're currently scoping the next biennial energy report, which will be released next fall. So if you have burning questions about energy you think the report should cover, please let us know. 
In addition to educating themselves about energy, consumers can also support the energy transition with their pocketbooks. They can sign up through their utilities to pay a bit more for cleaner electricity. They can install solar panels, increase the efficiency of their homes, and purchase electric vehicles. And these actions will not only reduce greenhouse gas emissions, but often save people money and increase comfort. Uh, and businesses can do this too. Salem-based Kettle Chips has rooftop solar powering their chips with the sun, and they got um, support for the from the Department of Energy to install those panels years ago. But of course, some of these newer technologies are more expensive and not everyone can afford to make the switch yet. And this slide provides some examples of state incentives to support Oregonians' investment in cleaner energy. Four of these programs are at the Department of Energy, and then the Department of Environmental Quality also runs a rebate program for electric vehicles. And there are also utility programs that support efficiency and renewable energy too, such as the Energy Trust. And I don't have time to walk through all of these, but you can find lots of information on our website. So that was a relatively quick summary of our report and how the energy sector is changing. Clearly, there is a lot more in there that I didn't talk about. I'm happy to come back and talk more about any of these topics. And I'll remind you again that the whole report is available on our website, um, and we hope that you'll dig in. So with that, I'm going to turn it over to Maury. You're tuned to All Volunteer Community Radio, KMUZ, Turner, broadcasting to the Mid-Willamette Valley on 88.5 and 100.7 FM. This is our weekly public affairs program, The Forum. I'm Forum producer Stella Schaffer. Janine Benner is the head of Oregon's Department of Energy. Maury Galberth is executive director of the Western Interstate Energy Board, which helps Western states and two Canadian provinces develop cooperative energy resources of their region. They came to a luncheon virtual gathering of Salem City Club to talk about the future for power. Good afternoon, everyone. I'm Maury Galbraith. I'm the executive director of the Western Interstate Energy Board. And I'm going to speak to you today about effective generating capacity and resource adequacy in the West. The Western Interstate Energy Board was founded in 1970, and the mission is to promote energy policy that is developed through the cooperative efforts of WEEB member states and provinces. Uh, the Western Interstate Energy Board works with the energy office officials and state public utility regulators from the 11 Western states and the two northern and westernmost uh, Canadian provinces. We focuses on everything from the disposition of spent nuclear fuel to making electricity markets in the West more efficient and to ensuring the reliability of the, the Western interconnection or the Western grid. I want to talk today about the changing resource mix in the West, and I want to talk about um, uh, installed capacity or the, the, the generation that is being retired and built. And so uh, the graph on the left shows installed generating capacity in the 11 Western states in 2020. Uh, the two points I wanna emphasize here is that uh, natural gas uh, provides the largest contribution to installed capacity. Uh, hydroelectric comes in second, and it may be surprising to some of you to see that wind has surpassed coal in providing installed generating capacity. Uh, again, installed generating capacity is the instantaneous maximum output of generators. The pie chart on the right 
shows the um, electricity generation, the actual operation of the generating units in the West over the course of an entire year. And what you see from this look or perspective on the changing resource mix in the West is, is that uh, natural gas accounts for the largest slice of, of energy consumed in the West at 34%. Hydroelectric energy is coming in second. And coal, uh, because it operates continuously over long periods of time, is still the third largest contributor from an energy perspective. I want to talk about the, the history of electricity generation um, expansion and retirements in the West. And what this chart shows is the, the pie chart on the right is the exact same chart that I showed you on the previous slide, whereas the bar chart on the left shows how we got to where we are today. And what you're going to see is, is that the, the, the coal generation that is shown at the bottom of those uh, bars and the hydroelectric generation that is the, the blue that's right above the coal generation, you know, these are legacy resources. These are investments that were made you know, 40, 50 years ago, and we are still enjoying the benefit of those resources today. Um, and so it's really important to focus on uh, that legacy aspect of, of generating capacity. And the other thing that you'll see here is that the solar and the wind and the yellow and the green is a relatively recent phenomenon. And we'll come back and, and look at that um, trends in solar and wind development here shortly. I also really want to emphasize uh, two other points. One is that the bulk electric system in the West is operated as a single system. So this, the system uh, spans all the way from British Columbia and Alberta in the north, all the way to uh, Arizona, California, Baja, California in the south, and from uh, there all the way east to Colorado and Wyoming. It's all operated as a single system and failures in any one part of that system can result in outages in, in locations far away. So it's all operated as a continuous system. And one of the things that the West has really benefited from over the course of many decades is the geographic diversity of our electricity generating resources. And I just wanna emphasize that geographic diversity uh, with, with this slide and the next slide. And so just let me point out some of that diversity. So uh, the, the first pie on this chart shows Arizona. Arizona has um, very hot summers with some really peaky electricity demand when all that air conditioning load comes on. And you'll see that Arizona has an awful lot of installed natural gas capacity, primarily natural gas peakers that help keep the lights on in Arizona. Uh, moving to the right, the pie chart for California, um, really shows the, the significant expansion in solar capacity uh, over the last five years or so. And uh, it's, it's gotten so big that California is, is exporting solar resources in just about every day of the year to um, neighboring, neighboring utilities and neighboring states. Next up is Colorado. Uh, Colorado has seen really significant increases in installed wind capacity. Uh, it's a, a state that has a really robust and rich um, wind resource. Uh, moving to the bottom uh, row, you'll see that Idaho uh, is still um, predominantly a state that has uh, hydroelectric generation. 
but you'll also see that significant wind resources have been built in Idaho recently. Uh, Montana has a, a, a pretty balanced mix between um, hydro, coal, and wind, and I think we're going to see more uh, wind development in the state of Montana in the near future. Uh, New Mexico is a state that uh, has a really rich wind resource, and again, I think uh, New Mexico is going to be a state where we're going to see future wind development. Turning to uh, a few more states, uh, turning to Nevada, you see that we've got uh, an awful lot of solar generation coming on in Nevada, and that seems pretty straightforward. Uh, as Janine mentioned earlier, Oregon uh, no longer has coal generation in its uh, installed generating mix. Uh, you see the legacy hydro resources and you see a significant build out of wind. Uh, turning to Utah, you see that uh, Utah still has a significant amount of coal resources and those coal imports, uh, electricity imports that Janine was talking about come primarily from Utah and Wyoming. And last but not least, you see a slice uh, on the lower row for Washington. Washington is still predominantly hydro. Uh, you're seeing more and more wind development in Washington, and you're not seeing very much solar development. Again, I think it's important to focus on the long-term trends here and to um, Think about these investments as, as long-term legacy investments. I just want to look at some of the trends in, in different types of technologies. And so here you see uh, two different trends. On the left, you have uh, the expansion and recent contraction of coal capacity in the West. Uh, for you, you, can, you can tell from uh, the, the bar chart there that from 1990 to about 2010, pretty steady um, amount of coal generation in, in the West uh, with a, a, you start to see a decline in 2011, and that decline is just going to continue uh, for the next five or six years. There's an awful lot of announced coal unit retirements in the West, and so that, that those bars are going to continue to drop. Uh, the chart on the right shows natural gas electricity generating capacity. And the really interesting thing to notice here is, is that the, the expansion or the build out in natural gas generation really occurred after that 2000-2001 electricity crisis um, where Enron was manipulating the markets. Uh, and so the response was of the utilities was to build uh, gas generating capacity and it has been relatively stable since. Uh, here's two more uh, technology types, hydro capacity and nuclear capacity. Again, hydro capacity uh, is a legacy resource that has been around for decades. Uh, you see minor um, uh, retirements of, of hydroelectric dams, but not, not very significantly. Uh, the nuclear capacity is shown on the right, uh, starting with uh, the retirement of the Trojan facility in Oregon in 1991. You see a relatively stable amount of, of nuclear capacity in the West. We are uh, down to three operating nuclear plants in the West. One is Energy Northwest, which is located in uh, Richland, Washington. Uh, another one is the Diablo Canyon plant in California. And the third one is the Palo Verde plant just outside of Phoenix, Arizona. Um, so that's the, the trajectory on nuclear. Now, turning to wind and solar. 
Uh, you see some pretty dramatic uh, increases in installed wind capacity on the left. Uh, it really has occurred in sort of two phases, the phase that occurred before uh, 2012 and then the phase after 2012. This is largely driven by um, federal incentives. Uh, the production tax credit and the investment tax credit uh, have driven the investment in installed wind capacity. And then you see the utility scale um, solar capacity on the right. And you see a very sort of dramatic hockey stick kind of shape to expanding solar in the West. And, um, and I would expect that trend to continue in the near term. And if we are to achieve some of those greenhouse gas emissions reduction requirements and some of the clean energy goals, uh, this expansion is going to have to get even steeper and more dramatic. And then finally, I wanted to include a slide in here about distributed energy resources. These are resources that are sort of customer owned and are sometimes called behind the meter. So the best way to think about these resources are uh, rooftop solar that homeowners put on their homes. And you see the, the rather large dramatic increase in installed um, net metering capacity in the West, really driven by solar expansion in Arizona and California. but if you note, uh, distributed the installed capacity of distributed energy resources today exceeds that of nuclear generation in the West. So those are the changes. As Janine mentioned, there's many factors that are that are driving these changes in resource mix in the West. You've got state mandates such as Oregon's renewable portfolio standard. Uh, we're now seeing mandates to build storage. Uh, I mentioned the the federal incentives. Uh, probably the biggest driver of all these changes is the, the dramatic decline in the cost of solar PV. And of course, uh, customer preference and choice are really driving these changes. These changes have some pretty dramatic impacts on, on the operation of the bulk electric system in the Western states. Uh, there's a, a, a really marked increase in the need for the balancing of variability in solar and wind resources. So that when the sun isn't shining, you need electricity generating capacity to turn on quickly and compensate for those changes in solar and wind. We're seeing some pretty dramatic changes in the flows on the transmission system in the West. Uh, it used to be that all flows aimed at the state of California with a lot of generation headed to serve customer load in California. With that solar build out in California that I mentioned, we're seeing those flows on the transmission system change as California is exporting solar energy uh, midday. Um, we're seeing uh, a, a, an increased need to have utility operator visibility into the distribution system so that they can see what some of that uh, distributed energy resource uh, output is doing, how it's performing, how it's behaving. And all of this leads to an even greater need for regional coordination. So I want to turn to regional coordination and the issue of resource adequacy. As Janine discussed earlier, uh, resource adequacy is the an electric power system concept where you look at the ability of the system to meet the demands for electricity using both its supply side and its demand side resources. Um, studying resource adequacy is becoming more complex due to the variable nature of wind and solar. 
So the chart over on the left sort of illustrates this. You can think of, of the, the first bar on the far left shows the projected peak demand for a system. A system could be Portland General Electric, it be, could be Pacific Power and Light, it could be a state or a region. You look at the, the essentially you look at the peak system demand and, and you add a reserve margin or an uncertainty factor to that. And then that's, that's the target or the requirement that you're trying to meet. In the past, we used resources that were pretty predictable to ensure that we had enough electricity or supply to meet that demand. We used nuclear, coal, hydro, gas, and it was pretty easy to sort of check the box and demonstrate that you had an adequate level of resources. Today, that's more complicated because of the variable nature of wind and solar. And so the third bar here tries to illustrate that. You see that the coal resources have been retired. You see an expansion of wind and solar, but the output of wind and solar is intermittent. And the real question becomes, um, how much of those resources are going to be available at during, during critical periods? And so one thing that uh, electric system operators and electric system planners have done is they've started to look at what's called effective capacity or effective load carrying capability of various different technologies. And the pie chart on, or the, the bar chart on the left uh, shows uh, examples or illustrative examples of the effective capacity contribution of different technologies. So you see uh, nuclear on the, the left with a very high capacity contribution of, of 94%. Uh, you see natural gas has a very high contribution to being able to meet load during those critical periods. Same with geothermal, uh, same with coal. Uh, with hydro, uh, the variable fuel input uh, creates some challenges there. Uh, and so you see a little bit lower effective load carrying ca capability of the hydroelectric system. And the important point here is, is you see pretty dramatic decreases in the capacity contribution of wind and solar, which reflects their, their intermittent capability. And so this is something that, uh, that planners and operators of the bulk electric system are, are preparing. This is a challenge that they're preparing to meet. And so I wanted to illustrate um, the nature of that challenge. So again, you've seen these charts before. The chart on the left is uh, one that I think you've seen uh, twice. It shows the build-out of electric generating capacity in the West. It shows those pretty recent build-outs of solar and wind in the yellow and the green over there on the right-hand side of that chart. The chart on the right has been adjusted to reflect the capacity contribution of the various resources. And so you see that all the bars have stepped down, but the wind and solar bars have stepped down pretty dramatically. And so this is something that electric system planners and operators are going to have to grapple with. As we decarbonize the grid, we wanna make sure that we have uh, effective capacity to keep the lights on during critical periods. And the critical period is changing in the West. Um, it, the, the, the most prominent periods are those, those four or five hours right after the sun goes down. Those are the most challenging times for system operators. And it's exacerbated when it's really hot throughout the West, as we saw two summers ago. Uh, if the temperatures hit 85 degrees in Seattle and you have customers in Seattle and the Pacific Northwest turning on air conditioning and it's hot, 
from Seattle to San Diego in the south and from San Diego in the south to Salt Lake City and Denver in the east. Uh, then the system is really strained, especially during those three or four hours right after sundown. And so that's what people are, are turning their attention to, and that's what they're planning for. The next uh, chart shows the exact same thing, except in this case, uh, in, in terms of a pie chart. On the left, you have uh, the installed generating capacity uh, in the West in 2020. You've seen this chart before. The chart on the right shows it adjusted for the effective capacity of wind, solar, and other generation. And again, you see a, 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 a narrowing of the wedge for solar and wind. So uh, that's the nature of the resource adequacy problem. Uh, the Western states and provinces have been aware of this problem for several years now. Uh, the Western Interstate Energy Board uh, issued the report that you see on this screen uh, in 2018 and really challenged the region to address this emerging resource adequacy problem so that we could simultaneously de decarbonize the grid and, and maintain electric grid reliability. Uh, in response to that report, uh, a group of utilities in the Pacific Northwest uh, endeavored to create a regional resource adequacy program. This is a first of a kind new program, never done before, um, where uh, you essentially create a information clearinghouse that allows utilities to ensure that they aren't double counting generating capacity in the West, where you have uh, utilities in the Northwest counting on a resource and then utilities in California counting on the same resource. We wanted to eliminate that possibility and the people at the Northwest Power Pool really stepped up to um, start working on developing a program. That program uh, is currently uh, in, a, in an initial phase of operation. It has 26 utilities from across the West, utilities like Portland General Electric, like Pacific Power and Light, Eugene Water and Electric Board, all the way south to Arizona Public Service, uh, all the way east to Northwestern Energy in Montana. Uh, and uh, again, this is a really exciting program that I encourage uh, you to take a look at as you continue to talk about um, energy policy in the Pacific Northwest and energy policy uh, in the West. Uh, the Western Interstate Energy Board has been trying to help the states and provinces understand the impacts of this regional program on state policies and utility integrated resource planning. And so we've published a report with um, some colleagues from Lawrence Berkeley National Lab and the University of Texas. What we found is, is that we looked at a, a whole bunch of different areas of integrated resource planning. These are, these are plans that are put together by the utilities and sort of categorize the areas as highly impacted or, um, or areas where there's the least impact. Uh, that resource capacity credit right in the middle that's highlighted in red there is what we've been talking about today in terms of effective capacity or effective load carrying capability. And again, I encourage you to take a look at that report. So finally, to um, sum things up here, um, the Northwest Power Pool Resource Adequacy Program can really produce some significant reliability benefits and, and some utility cost savings by allowing utilities in the West to continue to leverage that geographic diversity in electricity generating technologies. Uh, the regional program would not dramatically impact existing planning processes. 
Uh, it would impact it in two areas, one of them being the capacity contribution or capacity accreditation issue that we've talked about today. And I'd just like to end with uh, a, a point that I think is really important. Um, effective capacity, the concept that we've been talking about today, really needs to become the coin of the realm if we're going to keep the lights on as we decarbonize the grid in the West. And so with that, I want to thank you for your time. And uh, if you have uh, questions about any of the topics that I've discussed today, please please reach out to me or visit the uh, Western Interstate Energy Board website. So with that, I'm going to turn it over back to Cindy. Thank you so much, Maury and Janine, for the great presentations. What an incredible overview of our regional energy resources and planning that you're doing on the use of that energy to hopefully ensure that cookies and milk come out just right in the end. So before we get started I, with the Q&A, I do want to just remind the audience or anybody that received um, the notice of the program today, there was a link to the Department of Energy biennial report that Janine referenced, and hopefully we can get um, Maury's uh, materials, uh, links to those on the website as well. So just a quick review uh, for asking questions, all registered attendees logged in on a computer or other device. Um, have a raise hand icon or a button on your screen. If you want to ask either Maury or Janine questions, um, you just raise your hand or you can ask a question in the Q&A section. People will be called on as time permits. When you raise your hand um, and you're called on, we will activate your microphone, but you must click on your microphone icon on Zoom to be heard. So our time is short, so please be quick with your questions. And um, uh, if you uh, put in a question on the q and I'll read it for you. And if you are joining us by telephone, please press uh, star nine to raise and lower your hand and star six to mute and unmute your phone. So now let's get started with the first question. And that first question is from Donald Davis. Has the state looked into expanding nuclear power utilizing modular reactors like those developed by NuScale from Corvallis? And Janine, I think that is meant for you. Yes, thank you, Cindy, and thanks for the question. It's a really good one. Um, nuclear energy, the traditional bigger types and small modular reactors are covered in the biennial energy report. They both have their own technology reviews. So for those of you who may not be familiar with it, small modular reactors are smaller than traditional reactors. Um, they're scalable to fit diverse energy needs. They're factory fabricated, which can save costs and time, and they're equipped with passive inherent safety systems. And it's a new technology, but Oregon-based New Scale Power is the first modular nuclear reactor to receive design approval from the US Nuclear Regulatory Commission. Um, but back to the question about whether Oregon is looking into it, Oregon law actually prohibits new nuclear power plants from being cited in the state unless two conditions are met. So the first is a finding from the Oregon Energy Facility Siting Council that the federal government has a licensed repository for the permanent disposal of commercial spent nuclear fuel. And um, that has yet to occur. And the federal government is nowhere close to having uh, a licensed repository. The second condition, if that first one is met, is that um, any proposal for a power plant would go to a vote of Oregon residents, which makes it unlike any other generation facility. And that law stems from an initiative passed by Oregon voters in 1980. 
So it may not be um, in the near term part of Oregon's electricity mix, but um, New Scale has been in conversations and I think even has um, some contracts with um, uh, utilities and other states, um, for example, Idaho. So hopefully that answers your question. Okay, thank you for that, Janine. And this, I, I think the next question will demand maybe something from each of you. So from Jan Margosian, our household is part of a small electric co-op. What are some measures we can take to make sure the co-op continues to provide clean, affordable energy for the members? So uh, Janine, you want to take that first. And then Maury, just because you mentioned you're working with a lot of utilities. So if you have anything to add, just come off at the end. Thanks. Great. Yeah, I just wanted to point out that electric co-ops in Oregon actually have some of the cleanest electricity in the state. And that's because they get most, if not all, of their electricity from the Bonneville Power Administration, which is mostly hydro. Um, a little bit of nuclear, Maury mentioned the plant up um, in Washington. Um, so I, I think uh, they would tell you, and, and they would be correct, that your electricity has some of the lowest greenhouse gas emissions probably in the country. Um, and then co-ops are very responsive to their customer members. So the more they hear from you about how important you think clean energy is, the more likely they are to make the investments in energy efficiency and technologies that support clean energy. Maury, did you have anything to add? Oh, I would just add that you know you can encourage your co-op to. Uh, uh, institute good net metering policies. And I'm sure Janine and the Oregon Department of Energy are working with the co-ops in the states to, to implement Oregon's net metering laws and legislation. But I, that, that's one way that customers can directly participate in sort of making a cleaner grid. And if when Maury said net metering, you thought, what in the world is net metering? Well, there's a resource, Net Metering 101, in the Biennial Energy Report that'll tell you everything you want to know. You've been listening to an overview of electricity, the power resources of the Pacific Northwest region we live in, and the future of that grid. KMUZ would like to thank Salem City Club for the audio recording to make this program. You can find the entire event, along with the Q&A that had to be edited from this recording for time, archived on their website at salemcityclub.com, where you can also learn about becoming a member of the City Club and how to register for their programs. This is Community Radio, KMUZ, Turner, broadcasting in the Mid-Willamette Valley on 88.5 and 100.7 FM. This program is aired on Friday afternoons and repeated Sunday mornings at 8 o'clock. To find out what's coming up next week, search for our Facebook page, The Forum on KMUZ. Thanks for listening.